Lord, there is none like you. Love that song. Thank you, Brenda, for that. Well, there's always something that's competing with God for your heart. And we've been talking about what those things are in this series. This morning we're headed over to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. We're going to look at immediate satisfaction. One of the enemies of your heart. If you've been to church much in your life, you've likely heard this story before. It's a tragic history of one of our favorite Bible characters. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went out down into his house. David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. Father, we thank you today for your word and its impact in our lives, and even in the parts of your word that are difficult for us to swallow, hard for us to process. We pray that you would give us clarity that the Holy Spirit would have the freedom to work in our lives here in this day, in this place, in this age. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you listen to this song?
function Oh, how marvelous How boundless Is your love Is your love How wonderful Sacrificial Is your love For me for that. Remember back in third or fourth grade? Maybe not, huh? You'd been told all your life that girls had cooties or boys had germs or fleas or whatever it was that you were told they had. And you began to notice that maybe, possibly, that wasn't really true. And there was that girl across the room, or is that little boy recessed that caught your eye? And man, things started to develop, and you passed the first little note, do you like me, check yes or no, and you spelt half of the words wrong, and if you're lucky, your mom kept it in a scrapbook to show your high school girlfriend or boyfriend. I won't ask you to raise your hand if that actually happened. And man, things were really starting to process through, and you had your first person that you liked, and it was your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you were in third or fourth grade, and it was an exciting time. And then, one day, you're sitting in class, minding your own business, And you look across the room, and there is this girl who is the apple of your eye, or there's this boy who caught your attention, and you see their finger somewhere where it shouldn't be, all the way up their nose. And you see him working it, I mean, for a while. And you try to look away, but it's like this horrible accident that you just can't look away from. And out comes the finger, and on it there's material. (laughs) We won't go too deep into material, but 
The next place the finger goes causes you anxiety and alarm. Now, you've either been looking at that person or you were that person. But you may remember that moment in your life. And later you came to the realization that your teachers weren't perfect. (laughs) All school children just said amen under their breath. You realized that your parents weren't perfect. And my kids better shut your trap right now. (laughs) And uh, you may have even realized that your pastor wasn't perfect. And later you realized your spouse wasn't perfect. And even your favorite Bible characters were flawed. And God lets you see their messy lives on full display in His Word. He didn't try to cover it up. And God showed you the details of the stories. And on the one hand, you were disappointed. On the other hand, you had a built-in go-to excuse for the future. And it could be that later on you said, well, I guess I'm just like my mother. Right? Even though you had said for years that you didn't want to be, when it happened, oh, well, I guess I'm just like mom. Well, that's just the way my daddy was. If my teacher can act that way, then I suppose I can too. If David could be a man after God's own heart and commit adultery, then my mistakes aren't really that bad. And I'm fairly certain that God didn't put the flaws of His people in His Word to give us an excuse to mess up. But He does want us to be aware that there are competitors for our hearts. And one of the great enemies that each of us faces is the urge for immediate satisfaction. There's nothing new when it comes to this topic. There's nothing unnatural about it because we we desire things and our minds are geared to think that there's a quick fix for everything need a boost try five-hour energy snickers satisfies you and we see people on tv and in magazines and newspapers and life who become binge eaters or they become hoarders It's a new term, but people have been doing it for years. They used to call them pack rats. And people become online junkies, or they become real junkies. This will make you feel better. This will take the pain away. Need a career boost? Go to this one-day seminar and change your life. It's only $1,000. Go here and find out how to have A new history in the workplace. Need a new body? Take one of these magic pills every day for 30 days. And your body shape and weight will never be the same. Exactly, you gained 20 pounds. (laughs) Think I haven't tried it? I mean, look, we all are after immediate satisfaction. And we ask these questions in our minds. And now we see them as ads on television at night. But here was the thought in David's mind. Need some comfort on a lonely night? And we see how David lost to the urge for immediate satisfaction. Giving in to those desires often begins... When we're off our normal schedule, when we're out of a disciplined routine, and when life is just carefree. As we get into your notes this morning, and the notes are in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, we're going to talk first about the sluggish springtime. The sluggish springtime. You remember the shepherd of Bethlehem. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the Bible, 1 Samuel 16. It's not been that far back. And the shepherd of Bethlehem, when his dad asked him to run an errand, 
he made sure not only to run the errand, but he left the sheep with the keeper. The Bible says he got up early in the morning, he crossed his T's, he dotted his I's. He was a young man of character. When Saul asked him to get a hundred Philistines, he got two hundred. In his early years, David was clearly a man of character. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and 20 that he behaved himself wisely. In fact, it says it three times. He behaved himself wisely. Man of character. But we start to notice tiny cracks along the way in his life. And just a reminder, we all have these too. He was dishonest with the priest about why he needed bread and why he needed a sword. Just a little white lie. He lost his temper over an insult by a a fool named Nabal. He slaughtered heathen tribes so that no witnesses would be left behind. Later, he acted like he was a crazy man and moved in with the Philistines. Tiny cracks in character. But, hey, who wouldn't have had some problems in their life and some struggles with Saul chasing you down everywhere you went? But cracks in character seem to become more visible right after the victories of life. I mean, you've been struggling, and you've been pushing, and then all of a sudden things plateau, and things are good, and we got some victories. And now, real character kind of shows up. The campaign's over. And now we actually have to do the work. And, and so it's what took place in David's life. You know, getting to the summit can be really tough. But getting back down is even more of a struggle. Uh, I, I'm fascinated for some reason. I don't ever want to climb it. I don't ever want to go there, really. But I'm fascinated by Mount Everest. And I think the reason why I'm fascinated is because there are people who go and die on purpose almost to climb Mount Everest. They don't have the body type. They're not in shape enough. They don't have enough mountain climbing in their history. And yet they pay seventy to $75,000 to go and be tortured at the top of the world and die. And it's incredible to me. And, I, and I've read stories about so many of them that made it to the top And they had their 15 minutes up there, and they radioed back home, and they never made it back down. They died on the way back down. You know, there's a lot of Christians who see some type of success and some type of big thing happen in their life, and they don't make it back down to the normalcy, to the routine, to the plateau. And a measure of success can give your character a chance to show itself to everyone. And that's not always a good thing. Acting impulsively can turn out well when you have a clean spiritual walk, when you have good advisors, when you're physically healthy, when you're putting yourself in good situations. But people usually make the worst decisions when they're physically drained Mentally bored or spiritual, spiritually empty. In David's case, it might have been all three. You know, he had been in battles since he was a teenager. I mean, since he was a teenager, he'd been going out every year in the spring to battle. And uh, here it was again, and it was time for him to take a break. He was physically spent. The winter was over, and the spring campaigns were starting up again. The Jewish New Year was in our month of March. And and David stayed home to get some rest. In his mind, normally on war, normally on war strategy at this time of the year, was on absolutely nothing. It's not good for your mind to be on absolutely nothing. Bob Jones said that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You ever left a mischievous kid at home with no assignment? And you came back and things were dreadful, horrible, broken window or a broken appliance. 
or a house on fire? How do those things happen? Well, because kids are kids. And if you leave them to their own devices, not going to turn out well. So here he was, he's resting, maybe napping during the day a little bit, bored, not really spiritually connected. And it turns out he became a night owl during this time of his life. How many night owls out there? People who stamp, oh yeah, crazy people out there. All right, look, we should all be in bed by 9 p.m. It's the way it's supposed to be, right? And uh, then you wake up at 4.30 and you're headed back into, the, I mean, back into the mix. How many people are early people? You get up really early, yeah, cheery, happy, tick everybody off with your happiness in the morning. Good morning, so good to see you. Ah! Right? Uh, look, look, look. Here's the deal. How many of you, your spouse is the opposite you are on this? God bless you all. God bless you all. No good. It's just not a good thing, is it? And uh, so David, at this point in his life, he's an idol. And he gets up to take a little walk because he's in the sluggish springtime of life. And there she was on a rooftop. Let's talk about the speeding snowball, second part of the message. So far, David hasn't done anything wrong. He's just at home resting, wasting time, out of routine. But the moment he saw this woman, the snowball started rolling downhill. There's no indication whatsoever that Bathsheba was inviting someone to look at her. She was keeping the custom of the law discreetly. At night, in the darkness. She was trying to do, apparently, from the Bible, what the Bible says, um, what was required of her by the law. Now, how she went about that, we don't know the whole story. But David sent a messenger to find out who she was. That's right there in the passage. Uh, Let me just tell you up front, we'll hit this more at the end. She was not a stranger to him. He had not ever seen her without clothes on, but he'd seen her before. He knew who she was. This was the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his 37 top soldiers. Now we're going to see later that she was also the daughter of another one of his mighty men. A guy named Eliam. And when he noticed the name and relation, it didn't even faze him. He sent messengers this time. First time he sent a messenger. Now he sent messengers. And they said, you are summoned to appear before the king. Once again, what soldier's wife wouldn't have gone when summoned during the time of battle campaigns? Something might have happened to her husband. And the snowball's rolling. The Bible says he took her and lay with her. And she sent a message after she got home, I'm with child. David didn't blink. General Joab, send me mighty man Uriah the Hittite. Hey soldier, good to see you. What's the report on the battle? Well, since you're in town for a while, go home and refresh yourself. Uriah didn't eat the food the king's caterer sent. In fact, he never stepped foot in his house. This committed soldier, we just read it, how this committed soldier slept at the door of the palace. David called him back in. Uriah, what's up with you? You didn't even go to your house. King, I don't know if you know this, but there's a war going on. All my fellow soldiers are out there sleeping on the ground. I'm not going to go home and eat and drink and have relations with my wife. The snowball keeps rolling. Uriah, you're such a good soldier. Have dinner with me tonight, and we'll send you back to the battle tomorrow. A toast to the battle. A toast to the general. A toast to the soldiers. Even when the king got him drunk, Uriah didn't go down to his house. Uriah, head back to the campaign, but take General Joab this letter from me. 
set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. When your decision-making is tied to emotions, one wrong can lead straight into another wrong. And each hoop is bigger, and each fall is farther. David didn't just go over the yellow line and over the rumble strips on the side of the road. He didn't just pass over the shoulder. This snowball of sin went completely off the road and down the mountain. With all of the soldiers gone, the great leader left himself with no accountability. His defenses were down. He had no guardrails in place. Guardrails are so important because an off-course life can quickly end up at the bottom of the cliff. Do you know guardrails are there so that when you bump into them, they'll get you back into the center of the lane? You will see them and be reminded of the disaster on the other side. But when there's no guardrails, drifting turns into a fireball at the bottom of a hill. We all should have guardrails in our lives. Things in our lives that keep us in the center of the road. One of the greatest guardrails that you can have is a legitimate prayer life with God. It's just the real thing. Where you say, every day I'm going to get with God and it's going to knock me back into the center of the road. I don't know about you, but living in the culture we're in, you can get dirty in a day. Now you can have cultural dirt all over you in one day. You could have a loss of temper and bad communication and faulty thinking all in one day. And having a prayer life is a huge guardrail. You know, being in the Word of God is a big guardrail. The Word of God is there to purify you back into the center lane. It's there to keep you right and keep you balanced. And not go to the left or the right, not go over the cliff. But I, I don't know how we could say it any more plainly. I think every Sunday of the year, we include in the message, read your Bible and pray. And read your Bible and pray. Those are the two guardrails that keep you on the center of the path. And I, could, I do not want to get too far into this, and I don't even want to really press these buttons too much. But I bet you, I just bet you that 5% of this church right here actually does those two things every day. One out of every 20 people actually does those things every day. That's reality. In fact, studies tell us in the Christian realm of those who say they believe in God in the United States of America, less than 1% of the people who say that they believe in God, actually read and study and pray every day. And if we take those guardrails out, fireball. Those are the things that knock us back to where we're supposed to be. Those are the things that stop the speeding snowball. There was nothing that stopped this. Now, I don't know the time factor involved, but look, it was more than one day. Okay? And David went up on the roof and he saw her and he did all the things that he did. But it wasn't the next day when she found out she was with child. And biology tells us that. And she had to wait a little while before she knew that. Before she could figure it out. And they didn't even have modern pharmacies and modern tests. It was a little while for David to process what he'd done and to repent and to get back in the center of the path, but he didn't do that. And the snowball kept speeding and speeding further and faster until disaster took place in this passage. And let's talk about that as we see the sudden sentence. The sudden sentence, third part of the message. Verse 26. 2 Samuel 11. And when the wife of Uriah 
heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, that she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now David was in denial here. He was living in denial of his own presumption against God. Here he has justified all of his actions while covering them up at the same time. Bathsheba was now his wife. This was not an affair. This was a legal marriage. And he was doing these things the right way. And you know, David had become too important to be accountable in his relationship with the Father. Many American politicians seem to think that America as a nation is too successful to ever fail. Our economy is so large that it can't possibly go bankrupt. In recent years, we've been told that some financial institutions or auto manufacturers are too big to fail. You ever heard that term? I can assure you that no humans are too big to fail. The Bible says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. None of us are too big to fail. But you know, when we aren't willing to live by the rules that we've created for everybody else, disasters on the horizon. Now, not to get too deep into our national issues, but when we have a Congress who won't even live by the laws that they make for everybody else, we have disaster on the horizon. It, it, it's heading for disaster quickly. When the president who signs the bill won't even sign up for the bill that he signed. We have disaster on the horizon. And, and here's the deal in our lives. Sometimes as parents, we make rules for our kids that we're unwilling to live by. We make principles in our home for our family that we're not willing to live by. And your kids see through it. They know quickly that you have a double standard. They know quickly when you have a double life. They know quickly when you're two-faced. And most kids who leave church, you know why they leave church? It's not because of the youth group. It's not because our youth pastor is a hick from North Carolina. It, it's, well, that... Could be Well, no, that's not because of that. It's because there was a double standard at home. Mom and dad talked a good game, but they didn't live a good game. Mom and dad talked about guardrails for the kids, but they didn't have guardrails for themselves. And so this sudden sentence comes into play, and we see that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. It's the very next verse. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. If you don't feel the need to have a relationship check with your Father in heaven on a daily basis, you're in the same place David was in his life. You say, Pastor, look, I'm not a murderer. I am not an adulterer. I don't need to check in with God every, every day because I haven't done anything big. I'm just a mistaker. Don't think of me as a sinner. I'm just a mistaker. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, right? Yeah, everybody makes mistakes. And when you go to McDonald's and you get sweet tea out of the container instead of unsweetened tea, that's a mistake. That's really a mistake. And for those of you who like sweet tea, you're immoral. You're wrong. <laughs> unsweetened tea is where it's at, right? And I don't know if you are an unsweetened tea person and you've accidentally made that mistake and then you put your lips to the straw and drank it. <clears throat> It'll shake your world. Because you got something you didn't know you were going to get. That's a legitimate mistake. But when you deliberately cross a boundary, that's not a mistake. When you go into an area of hunting where it says, posted every 20 feet, 
no trespassing, no hunting, violators will be prosecuted. And then the ranger shows up and you say, you know what, we made a mistake, I don't know how we got out here. I don't know if you've done that recently, I'm not, I'm not giving that story out because I know somebody did that. So if you did that, God bless you. But you know, that's what we do in life. We get into these, I don't know how it happened. I think it was a mistake. Actually, it was more than a mistake. And it, David gets into this, and we, we know the story. Right, here it's laid out in the passage. Nathan tells him a story, and we, we should read the story even if we all know it, because it's so impactful. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was coming to him. And David's anger, David the shepherd, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely Pay back the lamb. No, he shall surely die. I want him to die. I want his head on a post. He needs to die because of what he did. And after he dies, he needs to restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Now, I don't know if you have ever been hit with a sledgehammer before. David was hit with a sledgehammer called truth. Thou art the man. I, I just have this sneaking suspicion that the things we get the most upset about in other people are usually true about us. Uh, we get so angry about what other people did. They should die for what they did. And the Holy Spirit says, that's you. I like the bell. It was good. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. That's you. Thou art the man. And goodness gracious, David was upset. And God was displeased Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord of God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives, and thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. God's message about sin is brutal. Did you know what it always says? All sin is against God. See, what we do is, oh, it's a mistake. I didn't mean to hurt him or her or do that. Or how did we get here? And what, what happened with all this? Here's what happened. You sinned against God. That's what happened. There's a sudden sentence that God gives out. Look at verse number 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, oh, I made a mistake. No, he had to own this as a deliberate act against God. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy son. Thou shalt not die. That's the good news, isn't it? God is a God of repentance 
He covers our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. You won't die. Look at verse 14. I want you to notice the wording of this. This verse is so powerful. How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born of thee shall surely die. He had given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Now, I just happen to think that while David walked on the rooftop that night, he never once considered what God thought. He never once considered what anybody else would think about what he was doing. About the testimony that he was giving out. And when we live for immediate satisfaction, we never consider what our choices will do to the name of Christ. There's a whole psalm that's written by David at this exact moment in his life. Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. According to thy loving kindness, he goes on to say, Blot out my transgression. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51 is a powerful psalm. You should read it sometime. It's about restoration. It's about renewal. But it doesn't change the fourth part. The sustained suffering. The sustained suffering. Sin causes suffering. Do you know there was no suffering before sin showed up? There's none. And there will be no suffering after sin's done away with. That's why we love Revelation 21. Tonight we're going to be speaking about heaven in our series about the end times. You know what it says in Revelation 21? There shall be no more sorrow. Neither shall there be any more pain. I don't know if you dislike pain. Most people do. Most people don't like pain a whole lot. There's pain involved because of sin. Do you know there's not a region on earth without pain and suffering? There's no society, there's no country, there's no nation that has ever figured out how can we get over pain? Now you would think that your local evolutionist would have an answer for suffering. But he doesn't. See, in his worldview, everything's supposed to be improving. God's Word shows that it keeps getting worse and worse. There's an old saying that many of you have probably heard. When I was a kid, lots of people wrote this one in the front of their Bibles. You might remember this one. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. How many of you ever heard that one before? You ever heard that one? If you've never heard it, you should latch onto it. It's a great saying. Do you know, right below that one, um, I remember when I was a kid, my mom had in her Bible, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Right below it, she had another one. Here's what it said. You probably heard this one too. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And it's profound because it shows us the results of sin. And they're never good. David is the poster child for the horrible effects of sin upon a life and family. His initial satisfaction was immediate. He got to be with Bathsheba, there was immediate satisfaction. But the results continued for the rest of his life and even beyond. His sins were covered, the Bible says, but the scars would plague his family and his friends. Right here in chapter 12, the child between him and Bathsheba dies. Even though he repented, even though he began to pray, God, no, help us. Don't let this child die, God. Child died. 
In the next chapter, his son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar. Then his other son murders Amnon and plots to take over the kingdom. Just as God promised, if you read in 2 Samuel 12 here, verse number 11, he says, I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Just as God promised, Absalom took David's concubines and had relations with them on the top of the palace before all Israel. You can't make this stuff up. The results of sin are massive in the Word of God. In the battle that ensued, Absalom, his son, was killed by David's cousin, Joab. And David became a broken man. His best friend committed suicide during this time. A man named Ahithophel. David's familiar friend, his chief counselor. It turns out, let me show it to you. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 24. Chapter 23. Let's go to 2 Samuel 23. There's a list here of David's mighty men. It's a long list. We won't read the whole thing. First look at verse number 39. 2 Samuel 23, verse 39. Look who the last guy on the list is. Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Look back up in verse 34. Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbi, the son of Maacolite. Look at this. Eliam. Eliam. That's Bathsheba's dad. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Eliam, one of David's mighty men, had a daughter named Bathsheba. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, had Bathsheba as his wife. And Ahithophel, David's best friend, his chief counselor, had a granddaughter named Bathsheba. He was David's friend. But David's pursuit of immediate satisfaction wounded his family deeply. You've thrown a rock in a pond before and watched the ripple effect on the water. The ripple effect of sin is such a devastating thing. Sin in our lives reaches out and defiles things that we haven't even considered. It's a plague. But pastor, wait, you have to end the message with good news. You can't leave it at that. I'm afraid there's no good news here. David restored his relationship with God, but his life was never the same. And my prayer is that the good news of this message will be Christians who weigh the results before going for immediate satisfaction. Young people who make decisions with their hearts submitted to the Holy Spirit instead of decisions based upon peer pressure in the moment. The good news is when we learn from other people's mistakes. The bad news is when we repeat history. You can read 2 Samuel a hundred times, and every time when I read it, I wish every time that David will make a a different decision. Right? You get to this chapter, David, go to war with these guys. Don't stay home. Go to the battle. David, no, don't go up on the rooftop. Don't send Uriah into the battle to be murdered. But the history's written. It can't be changed. Here's my question as we close. What's your history going to be? Immediate satisfaction is competing for your heart. That's a fact. Who's going to win? When you look back at your life, you'll be able to tell the times where immediate satisfaction won. But you won't even begin to be able to process what the ripple effect is from that. I've talked with people on their deathbed before. 
who said, I have so many regrets. I have so many regrets. There were things I wanted to do. There were things I wanted to change. But I never did it. You know, it's because when we're young, we're invincible. Right? When you're 15, 16, 17, 18, 22, 27, you are invincible. Nobody can take you down. Nobody can win against you. You are the smartest, best-looking person that's ever been produced on planet Earth. And you can make the mistakes that other people have made and get by with it. Right? Like, I can do what that person did, and I can get past it. I'm good enough to get past it. You know, later on you realize maybe you weren't quite good enough. You can't get past it. And these things that we go after for immediate satisfaction are backbreakers. (laughs) Young people who declare bankruptcy when they're 22 years old because their debts are so great. Immediate satisfaction. Young people who have children out of wedlock and then they make decisions about marriage and they make wrong decisions about life. Immediate satisfaction. Immediate satisfaction is one of the largest enemies that the Christian faces. It really is. It's a giant. And yet, God gives us a way out. God gives us, in His Word, a way to submit to the Holy Spirit and to make decisions that we ought to make. Here's what I want you to do this morning as we close. If you have a burden on your heart, Maybe it's a regret in your life. Maybe it's a decision you're making. Maybe you need to pray for one of your kids, your grandkids. Or maybe you need to pray for your future and say, God, keep me on the center of the path. I need to recommit to the guardrails today. It's not profound. The guardrails still are the Bible and prayer. They still are. And you know how often you have to recommit to them? Every day. Because if you don't, You won't read the Bible. If you don't, you won't have a prayer life. And if you don't have those things, your life has no compass. It has no guide. It'll go anywhere that the wind takes it. And that's not where you want to be. God has better plans for you. Let's bow in prayer. As we bow, would you pray this to God today? God, you have good plans for me. I know you have good plans for me. I know you have something special for my life. Help me when I face this enemy of immediate satisfaction to trust in you. Help me to keep guardrails in my life. Accountability, structure, the Bible, prayer, people who care about the decisions I make around me before I make them. Oh God, would you help us with these things? Father, would you work in our lives today by your Spirit? As Casey plays this morning, I'm going to give you just a couple minutes. Just a couple minutes. If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to come to the altar, if you need to pray with somebody, for somebody, Go ahead and come right now as he starts to play. We're going to just take a couple minutes and then we'll close that off. I'll give you some time this morning. Whatever your burden is today, bring it to God. Bring it to the altar. Bring it before his throne.